Welcome to the Upper Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this week, we're talking about Richard Wagner's Lohengrin, which debuted in Weimar in 1850, conducted, Eric, by Franz Liszt. Well, that's not a bad pedigree to start out with, is it? There we go. There we go. Again, music and text by Wagner himself. As he was wont to do, because he wouldn't have trusted his, his libretti to anybody else but him because he was, in his own estimation, the best there is. So <laughs> why farm it out? <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> exactly. Set in the 10th century, we are in Antwerp, or the environs of Antwerp. Right. And there is this political situation there where King, King Henry, Henry. The Fowler. I don't know why they called him Henry the Fowler, but... I suppose there could be worse names to be tagged with. <laughs> he liked hunting. There you go. He has come to seek troops to repel a, a potential invasion by German forces, I believe. Right, right. But when he arrives, he finds this this little political strife. This dukedom is, as you said, in strife. What is the situation? We're in Brabant. Brabant. And Frederick of Toromund. He's claiming his rights to the dukedom of Brabant because he claims that uh, this young woman, Elsa, has murdered her brother, who is the heir to the dukedom. Godfrey. Godfried. And he claims that she murdered him, and, and they were his wars, Charges. His charges. And so with Gottfried gone, he claims the dukedom for himself uh, with the support of his wife, Ortrud. Ortrud is, she's kind of a nasty piece of work. Oh my goodness, is she ever. She's, <laughs> she's, from, she, she's from Northern Europe. Yeah, and she is, well, she, we, we don't know this yet, but she's a, she's a sorceress. She is a, a heathen sorceress. She is. She worships the pagan gods, and she doesn't like the encroachment of Christianity on what she believes is the true old religion, and she wants to see a return to, to the old ways. She's basically, we'll find out, is pulling all the strings here. She's the Lady Macbeth here. She is manipulating her husband. Because what she wants is for him to take over the duchy so that she can then revert it to the old gods. Exactly. And stem the, the, the rise of Christianity. Exactly right. And so they fabricate this story of Elsa taking her brother into the forest and coming Killing out it. alone. Yes. And she is therefore not fit to become the ruler of the duchy. Right. And so basically Elsa is brought in uh, before Henry the Fowler and basically given the opportunity to defend herself. The way that they go, they're going to sort this out is through a duel. Elsa needs a champion who right. will fight for her against Frederick. I mean, it's, it's, it's a sort of weird sort of justice from our perspective, but it's that, that idea that good will win. Right. And she, in turn, tells of this dream that she had. Uh, and it's a very famous aria, Einsamin trüben Tagen. She tells of uh, this champion that she dreamed of, all dressed in gold, and she believes that he will appear to defend her honor, believes it fervently. And throughout this scene, she's almost like, it's as if she's in a trance. And everybody says, is she, is she crazy? Is she, you know, what's wrong with her? 
Um, but she believes in this champion, and she's given the chance to to summon him. And so they, the, the heralds, you know, blow the trumpets and they strike the shield and and command, you know, her champion to appear and and defend her honor. And it happens several times, and there's nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. <laughs> uh, until finally Elza sinks to her knees in prayer and prays for him to come to her her defense. And at that moment, all of a sudden, the crowd starts stirring and says, look, look, over there across the waters. And a skiff appears on the horizon. It's drawn by a swan, and in the skiff is the knight of Elza's dreams, dressed exactly as she saw him in her dream. All shining Uh with a sword. The knight of the swan. And the skiff pulls up to shore, and he steps off. Right. He sings a very short piece, Nun sei bedankt, mein lieber Schwan, and, and sends, the, <laughs> sends the swan on its way, <laughs> basically. Uh, and he steps forward, and he identifies himself as Elsa's champion. He is there to defend her honor. Not only that, but, hey, let's get married. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but she, there's sa- a- she says that, you know, she, when she prays for the champion to come, that she would even be prepared to give herself to the champion. Everything that she is, uh, is, is, it would be his. But he says, he says, there's a catch. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's a catch. There's a condition. There's a condition. You must never ask me my name or where I'm from. And she's like, okay. Sure. <laughs> just, just fight. <laughs> no, she doesn't say that. But... Um, the arena is set up. Everybody gives, you know, gives way and, and gives them space for so the duel for the duel to happen. And Telramund and the knight, and we don't know his name yet because she's not allowed to ask him. <laughs> they stand in the center of the ring, and uh, Henry the Fowler strikes his shield three times, and they begin to fight. And in very short order, Lohengrin gains the upper hand and has his sword at Telramund's throat and he doesn't kill him. He spares him because he understands that Telramund is being manipulated by Ortrude and that Telramund is therefore not wholly responsible for his actions. He's being goaded on by his wife. This is true. And Telramund is completely taken aback and he he's he is just completely uh, gobsmacked that he was defeated and Ortrud even more so because she they have a they have a wonderful ensemble that ends this act and everybody's singing their thoughts which is you know what we can do in opera we can't do that in, <laughs> <laughs> we can't do that in, in in straight drama because if everybody talked at the same time you'd, you'd be cacophony but in opera you can follow everybody's line f- with the musical line and um, and Ortrud is thinking who who is this guy who has completely shut down my power she's she's kind of arrogant really <laughs> she's you know she is she really thought she had everything all set up all she had to do was knock down the dominoes and everything would be hers and she just doesn't know quite what to make of this he has thrown a spanner in the works yes indeed so terramund loses lowengrin the knight of the swan spares his life, and Telramund and Ortrud are 
taken into custody because they're going to be banished. Right. Because they have lost. Elsa has prevailed. Right. Thanks to her champion. Right. End of Act One. Right. Act Two. Mm-hmm. We find Telramund and Ortrud outside the walls of Brabant. In, and they've been cast out, basically. And uh, Telramund isn't sure what on the world they're going to do. He is consumed by shame. And he's starting to turn on his wife, on Ortrud. You know, you brought me to this. You brought us here. And she rather... Um, well, it's interesting. The beginning of this of this scene, you hear this this orchestral introduction, and it's very menacing. But it's but it's very cloaked and secretive. And and I think someone once described it as uh, like the sound of a great serpent uncoiling itself in the dark. That's Ortrude. Right. <laughs> that is Ortrude in a nutshell, and she is not done yet. What she plans to do is exploit the one weakness that exists between Elsa and this mysterious knight, and that is the condition that he placed, that the knight placed on Elsa. Don't ask me my name or where I'm from. Right. And Ortrud says, you know what? We can win the upper hand by... Planting the seed of doubt. Right. In Elsa's mind. Right. So, they resolve to join forces together to make this happen. Telramund leaves, and Ortrud calls Elsa's name up, up, you know, calls up to the walls to Elsa, and Elsa actually appears up in, in a window and, uh, you know, calls down who's, who's calling my name, and, and Ortrud basically abases herself and says, I have been brought low. I'm so ashamed. I am so uh, I'm so regretful that things have come to this. And she basically works her wiles on Elsa and gets Elsa to agree to come down and let her in and take her into her her, her retinue, basically for you know for the wedding. Because so, the wedding, her wedding is the next day. Exactly. Elsa is going to marry the Knight of the Swan. Exactly. While Elsa is coming down the stairs. Ortrud turns and in this wildly exultant uh, passage, and Vita Goethe calls on the gods, on, on Odin and on Freya, to help her and to uh, strengthen her to defeat their enemies, uh, embodied by Elsa and this knight. And it's a, it's a showstopper. <laughs> it's just a huge vocal moment. And uh, it's only ended when Elsa appears at the, you know, at the gate and, and, and lets Ortrud in and forgives her and indeed takes her into her, her wedding party. This is to further her plan to sow those seeds of doubt in Elsa's mind. And Telramund, before he's banished, is doing the same thing among the nobles. Exactly. Because the Knight of the Swan, Lohengrin, is going to be leading them into battle the next day. Right. And Telramund says, you're going to follow this guy? You don't know who he is? What do we know about him? We don't know anything about him. How, how can we follow somebody like this? The plan, this evil plan that Ortrud has, comes to a head as the wedding procession is heading toward the cathedral, entering the cathedral for the wedding ceremony. Yeah. 
amongst, as you said, amongst Elsa's retinue is Ortrud. Who breaks rank suddenly and turns on Elsa and says, I, you know, I am of noble birth. I am not waiting attendance on you. And besides which, this guy you're marrying, what do you know about him? You know nothing. You don't know his name. You don't know where he came from. And here you are about to marry him. How can you do this? And again, she's, she's strengthening those seeds of doubt in Elsa's mind. Elsa is defended, though, by the king and, and his knights. The knight of the swan has the right to his secrecy. There is nothing that can prevent the marriage going ahead. Right. And at which point Lohengrin himself appears. Well, we don't know his name yet, but <laughs> but we do. <laughs> and he he reviles Ortrud and uh, you know basically denounces her and leads Elsa onward to the cathedral, you know, for the wedding. And yet at the last moment before she enters, Elsa looks back. And she looks and she sees Ortrud, and Ortrud is, has this really exultant gaze, this really wildly triumphant look on her face. And you can see in Elsa's face that the doubt is growing and growing and growing. There is an irony here in that Ortrud, one of the accusations that she throws is that the knight is using sorcery. Oh, yes. When, of course, the irony is that she's using sorcery. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got this this battle between between Christianity and paganism here. Yeah, we'll find out just how much sorcery she's using a little later in the in uh, Act Three. That's the end of Act Two. Act Three begins in the bridal chamber. Right. The Knight of the Swan and Elsa are now married. And of course, we open with the famous wedding march, which everybody knows, <laughs> but probably very few know that it came from Wagner's Lohengrin. Elsa and the Knight. They are alone together for the first time. It's the end of the day, the end of the wedding celebrations, etc. And finally, they have this time together. But that doubt is still playing in her mind ever more greatly. Mm -hmm. More and more as the scene progresses until she finally cannot stand it. She cannot help herself. She has to ask. And, and she, she does. does. She asks him, why she wants to know his name and where he's from. And at that moment, Telramund and his followers come bursting in and attack Lohengrin, who in turn defends himself and kills Telramund. With Telramund dead, the idyllicism of the marriage between Elsa and Lohengrin gone. has gone. Gone. He has a, an air of resignation about him now, and he's... Because she's asked, she's asked the fatal question. Yeah, she did exactly what he told her she couldn't do. Uh, so he arranges for Telramon's body to be brought before the king, and he he tells Elsa to you know to meet him there, and he will he will answer her question. So by the shores of the river again, the same place that uh, Lohengrin had stepped off of the boat drawn by the Swan. Yeah, he reveals to all who he is. And where he's from. Who is he, Eric? And where is he from? <laughs> it's a very, very famous narrative. It's Lohengrin's narrative. And he proclaims at the, at the end of this narrative that he is the son of Parsifal. He is a knight of the Grail. He is a Grail knight. And his name is Lohengrin. And 
you know, of course, his theme in the orchestra rises up at that point, and uh, and he has to go. Yeah, <laughs> gotta go. And and I, he I, says to Elsa, he says, he says, if you had only stayed with me one year, your brother would have been returned to you. Interesting. Yeah, because this whole situation is posited on the disappearance of Gottfried. Of Gottfried. In the distance, across the river, the swan reappears, pulling the boat. The empty skiff. Right. Which is going to take Lohengrin away. At that point, here comes <laughs> a little Ms. Crazy again, Ortrud, who is completely exultant. She has won, she believes. I've won, and uh, she says to him, you, you're looking for Gottfried? Well... I recognize that swan by the chain around its neck. That's Gottfried. I, you know, she turned him into a swan, basically. And that's the swan that was that drew that drew Lohengrin's boat and and uh, landed him there on the shores of Brabant. So at that point Lohengrin sinks to his knees in prayer and I believe he takes the uh, he takes the the chain from the swan's neck and the swan slink, sinks beneath the waves and in its place rises up the young boy Gottfried. Very much alive. Restored to Elsa. Yes. And a dove appears as well. Yes. Lohengrin steps onto the boat and the dove draws him away across the waters from whence he came. Yes. Ne'er to, to be seen again by Elsa and, uh, and the folks in Brabant. At which point, Ortrud has dropped to the ground lifeless and Elsa has dropped to the ground lifeless. Everybody's dropping to the ground lifeless, unfortunately, at the end of this opera. That's right. Elsa <laughs> falls into the arms of her brother and dies. Yes. And end of opera. Yeah. <laughs> we make light, but, you know, it's, again, over and over and over again, we see with opera the plot, which on its own <laughs> it just seems ridiculous. Seems ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And yet it's uh, the music completely carries you into that world and, and you, you'll believe, you'll believe. Lohengrin is a transitional opera for Wagner. It is, it is. Tannhäuser is the opera that appeared right before it. And Tannhäuser is, uh, as Wagner, still being influenced very heavily by other musical compositional styles. In, in, in Tannhäuser, we're looking at uh, French Grand Opera, basically. In, in Flying Dutchman before that, we're looking at German Romantic Opera, as, as we would hear it with Karl Maria von Weber or Marschner or those folks. Wagner is, is just about, he's just about there, uh, having found his own voice as a composer. Uh, he's working with leitmotifs a lot more. Uh, those are the musical themes. Yes, the musical themes. Well, you know, you'll hear Lohengrin's uh, theme. You'll hear the Grail theme in the high strings of, of the very beginning of the opera, the Prelude, the Prelude to Act One, which is the most gorgeous, oh. gorgeous music. Those high strings, and as you said, representing the Grail, the Grail, and its its Christian significance, its purity. And in the in the prelude, you hear the grail. It's all at the, the very highest register of the violins to begin with, and then it descends. It's the grail descending to earth and then ascending back again, which is basically the arc of the opera. Um, so you've got that motif. You've got uh, the motif of um, warning. 
Yeah, it's, you know, the, the forbidden question. Right. Uh, nicht sollst du bist befragen, you hear Lohengrin say in the, in the first act. And you hear that motif again and again in, in different contexts. And, you know, the motifs here are, are very, are longer than, than Wagner will employ later in The Ring and Tristan and Parsifal. They're longer here and they're used, they're, he hasn't developed his system yet of creating shorter motifs, which he can then use as building blocks and he can, you know, Sort of turn, weaving them intricately together. Yeah, and using the orchestra as a, as a narrator, basically. Right. He hasn't gotten to that step yet, but he's really close. <laughs> this, is, this is his last step, because the next opera, of course, is Das Rheingold. And the music here is just gorgeous. Oh, boy, yeah. I mean, this is, this is in some respects, perhaps his most lyrical opera. Arguably, yeah. I, I can see that argument, absolutely. In theme, it's very similar in many respects to, to Tristan und Isolde. You've got that marriage made in heaven that doesn't work. True, true. And, and he's using a, you know, a very old trope. Uh, we've seen it before in Bluebeard. We've seen it all the way back in, in uh, Greek, Greco-Roman mythology with Cupid and Psyche. It's that story of... Let's get married, but don't ask any questions because <laughs> bad things will happen if you do. And, of course, they do. So what then is the reputation of this opera within the context of, of Wagner but of, of opera in general? Um, well, it's hard to say opera in general. I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly one of the standard repertory operas, and it's, it's an opera that's it's a little easier to perform, to pr- produce, if you're an opera company, than, say, The Ring Cycle or Tristan, just because of the scale. And, well, it's, it's large scale in terms of the chorus, but in terms of the voices required to sing the lead roles, Lohengrin is not as punishing a role as Tristan or Siegfried. Elsa, same thing. You can you can you can have a spinto voice sing Elsa. You don't necessarily need uh, what they call a hochdramatische soprano, which is the heaviest dramatic soprano. You know, we're talking Birgit Nilsson, Eva Martone these days, Nina Stemme, Christine Gerke. You know, you don't need necessarily quite that heavy a voice to do it. Or towards verging on the on the pretty pretty hochdramatische, but that's the only role it is. So you can see smaller opera companies do Lohengrin, you know, relatively easily, relatively, <laughs> very relatively. In terms of Wagner, it's, again, it's, as you say, it's a transitional piece. It's, it's him it's just Wagner sort of almost, into his full maturity. Almost in his full maturity. He's not right. quite there yet, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, process of discovery for him. And as you say, it's one of the most lyrically gorgeous operas ever. Richard Wagner's Lohengrin. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.